Thanks very much, Kevin, and, and thanks to the Society for uh, inviting me this afternoon. It's, um, it's really lovely to hear the presentations um, earlier and to hear people who are in the thick of it, really, in terms of grappling with this um, new opportunity, let's say, and, um, and putting it into practice and, um, and, and for sharing some of the teething problems and some of the issues that are coming up, as well as obviously some of the, um, the things that are going really well. Um, I haven't been doing any direct research on degree apprenticeships, so my comments about degree apprenticeships are more observational and based on uh, long-standing research on uh, um, apprenticeships at sub-bachelor level um, uh, and long-standing interest in apprenticeship uh, being used as a lever of government policy in a variety of ways. Um, but I thought I'd start off just by um, putting a few numbers in the room and I haven't been here all afternoon so oh, that didn't work very well did it? I should I've used this rather than the than the uh, the arrows let's see if that works better yeah um, so apologies if the first uh, paper um, uh, used some numbers um, but just really to rehearse where we are in terms of the, the sort of pattern and characteristics of starts the 1617 is the most recent full year that we have statistics. Um, the statistics, as you probably know, are readily available um, through the FE, FE data library. Um, so what you can see there is overall, uh, this, is, this is in England, I should say. Um, it's been reminded, of course, very strongly that Scotland's different. Um, so in England, there were just under half a million starts on apprenticeships in 2016-17, uh, and that was a drop on the previous year. And as you know, that's caused a bit of consternation in the press um, uh, and a bit of uh, embarrassment, I think, for, for the government because it coincides with the introduction of the levy um, and some significant decreases um, uh, associated with that. Nonetheless, it's, it's, it's still a high number. Um, if you look at the age profile, you can see that nearly half of all starts are over 25 when they, they commence their apprenticeship. Um, and I think that's really important to bear in mind. It's it's the sort of figure that's been present in the um, in the data since around about 2009-10, something like that. So the alarm's working. <laughs> Good news. Um, we don't control the test. We no, wouldn't do that. Right. Excellent, excellent. Um, gosh, that really did. Um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, about everybody else knew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. About uh, it's about age. So. Yeah, so if, you, if people can cast their minds back, um, apprenticeship has been uh, made available to all ages since around about 2005 to 5, 6. Um, before that, it was a programme available to those under 25. Um, but then the, the kind of real rise in the older apprenticeship starts happened when Train to Gain was rebranded as apprenticeship around about 2010, if I remember rightly. And since then, we've had nearly half of all starts being 25 plus. And indeed, if you look at the age profile, um, it's, it's really right up the age profile, including about 3,000 starts at aged 60 plus. Um, and then we have this, the breakdown of, this, of the younger age groups, um, and with about only about a quarter now um, starting aged under 19. Of course, the 16 to 18 year olds is the traditional, is the traditional age for young people starting an apprenticeship. Uh, and the levy, um, effect of the levy um, seems to have impacted most strongly on the 19 to 24 age group. Um, interesting, the declines are, are, are the strongest in that group at the moment. 
but it's a fast-moving picture. So quickly at, at levels, and I'll, in the next slide I'll say a little bit more about levels. Um, just over half starting at level two, so that's what um, the government calls the intermediate apprenticeship, um, so-called equivalent to four or five GCSE passes. Um, about 40% at level three and, and just 7% at level four plus. Uh, so well over 90% starting at, at, at level two and three. Um, the vast majority in the service sectors, so that reflects the kind of economy that we have now uh, in England. Um, and also that reflect, is reflected in the female-male start. So we've got a service-led economy, um, and uh, that's reflected in, in more females now starting apprenticeships than males. Of course, the, the gender imbalance is very stark by sector. So we haven't seen really uh, improvements over the years um, in terms of gender participation in engineering or construction or plumbing, for example, uh, where it's still uh, well under 5%. Um, the, the, the stats on learning difficulties and disabilities and non-white, uh, I was quite surprised that it's still using that phrase non-white in, um, in the HE, uh, the House of Commons briefing paper, because it always feels a bit odd to me. But anyway, um, from the statistics in, that are collected through the individual learning record, it's just over 11% of all starts are non-white. Um, and about 10% uh, with learning difficulties. And there have been some slight increases in recent years, but, but very, you know, very minimal, but slight increases in terms of that diversity. So just in terms of level, um, these are thousands. Um, so it's not just two starting at level six, it's 2,000. But I think it does just remind us um, that the, uh, the numbers, as well as the proportion, are small still at the, at the higher, and particularly at the degree uh, level level six, um, and at the moment there are less than seven, uh, less than fifty starts at level seven, so it's sort of to master's level. Um, so they're not recorded uh, in the in the statistics. If you look at the higher level, the vast majority on management um, related frameworks of one kind um, or another. So it's a small it's a small but growing uh, number uh, and. Um, a very small proportion uh, of the total, but again, growing. So I just wanted to reflect um, briefly on, on apprenticeship as a concept, the concept of apprenticeship. Um, so it's kind of used in, in two ways, really, in the literature, referred to in two ways. Um, firstly, uh, as a, a kind of set of institutional arrangements that, uh, that, that countries um, erect in order to pro offer provision for cohorts to access um, skilled work, skilled occupations, um, uh, through uh, um, apprenticeships which are situated at below bachelor level. So if we think of the strong apprenticeship countries in, um, in, in Europe, Germany, the Germanic-speaking countries, Germany, Austria, for example, um, that's really how apprenticeship is used in the main, is as that really strong um, set of arrangements that offer opportunities for young people in the main to access skilled work through a very structured um, uh, offer, which includes um, uh, learning in the workplace um, and also off the job through attendance at vocational college with you know, a reasonably strong um, diet of general education in there as well, known as the dual system, as you'll all, as you all know. So a set of institutional arrangements providing the initial vet um, up to um, sub-bachelor level. And the, the kind of word that's used to describe that in terms of level is intermediate. 
in the literature, which is interesting because we use intermediate to refer to level two, which in the, those kind of strong countries isn't actually classed as an apprenticeship level. So apprenticeship is, is, is reserved for those occupations which are designated, if you like, as being uh, worthy of apprenticeship and, and having enough to learn that they're going to lead to skilled, skilled work with a, a wage premium attached. But it's also used, in a sense, just as an ordinary word, as a, uh, to refer to a model of learning. Um, so um, we, we think about it as a model of learning for occupational expertise. Um, it's, in that sense, a concept which can cross various kinds of boundaries, various kinds of borders, crossing um, uh, hierarchies, um, crossing different kinds of sectors. Um, so it's, a, it's quite a generative concept when we think about it as a model of learning. Um, which differentiates it somewhat from this model of learning as this uh, concept of apprenticeship as a set of, of institutional arrangements. So I've said there that it applies you know, to chefs and barristers and teachers and musicians. Uh, well, all people will talk about you know, their apprenticeship. Um, and what they're effectively referring to is how they've developed their expertise, their occupational expertise, through engaging in diverse social practices which will usually involve some on-and-off-the-job type of practices um, that enables them through over time to become accepted and recognised as a full member of an occupational community. So mobility, I think, um, is actually um, as lo you know, long-standingly been central to um, the concept of apprenticeship. I and mean, if you go back to medieval times, um, this is this um, uh, term journeyman, um, which I think is, you know, is in essence about mobility, um, quite literally about mobility. So this is where um, after uh, an apprentice has uh, completed their specified um, apprenticeship through the arrangements that are recognised by the institutions that support it. This is going back to medieval times and the apprentice um, can be classed as a journeyman which means literally that they're allowed to journey in search of work as an autonomous, what we would now call qualified or certified uh, individual. Um, and they're allowed to sell their expertise in their own right. So the notion of autonomy is really important. Um, they're not beholden um, for the, uh, in terms of the opportunity to access work and access pay for their services and their expertise. But they are belong at, but they do belong um, to the, if you like, the institutions um, in, in medieval times, going back to the guilds, um, to that community of practice. So um, they have an opportunity through that membership to develop the, the, the craft, uh, develop the practice um, uh, alongside their uh, fellow members. Um, so I think we can kind of think about and, and ask, you know, to what extent do the contemporary apprenticeships um, and arrangements kind of scaffold individuals in that way to uh, the facility to be mobile and to be autonomous and to kind of earn their own earn their own living and be independent. <coughs> so to what extent are they you know, providing a vehicle for social mobility? I want to say a little bit more about apprenticeship as a, a model of learning now and then think about how that's realised in different ways, which is what we find when we do empirical research on on apprenticeships in, in England, lots and lots of variety. Um, and what kind of um, indicators, if you like, might be more or less facilitative of apprenticeship being able to offer 
mobility progression and all those things which um, I think most of us um, you know, are kind of interested in and trying to support. So Lorna uh, Unwin and I, as uh, Kevin said, lots of my work has been um, in collaboration with my colleague uh, Lorna Unwin, um, um, identified four uh, dimensions um, of apprenticeship as a model of learning, um, which kind of is a way, help, a way of helping us to think about what it's offering when we go in empirically and, and um, try and understand um, uh, the apprenticeships that we're researching. So we refer to the pedagogical, occupational, locational and social dimensions. Um, so just briefly, um, what we mean by the pedagogical dimensions is, um, is that a workplace curriculum is constructed and made visible through the apprentice's participation in authentic and relational uh, work um, that enables them to work with colleagues and, and clients. Um, this feedback um, and the modelling of the career trajectory being, uh, are seen as central to the manager's and the supervisor's role in this. Um, and, the, and the workplace trainers. Um, and again, from a pedagogical perspective, apprentices are facilitated to disengage with the workplace uh, in order to develop some critical and reflective <coughs> capacity um, and that allows them to acquire knowledge that goes beyond the parameters of the specific task and role that they might be in at that current time and potentially beyond the parameters of the organisation so that they're developing um, occupational expertise. So the occupational, um, really about apprenticeships initiating individuals into an occupational or, or professional community, um, which is defined by solidarity around habits, um, shared knowledge, shared skills, values, customs, those kinds of things which help to uh, differentiate and, um, and reify in some respects an occupation. Um, so in the case of apprenticeships, this dimension is critical um, for providing a sense of stability. Um, but it's important to say that if the, if the pedagogical dimension is in place, then the stability isn't necessarily um, leading to stasis, because combined with a, a kind of dynamic pedagogy, it can actually lead to, um, to innovation and development. Um, and obviously exposure to new ideas and that kind of thing. So the locational uh, dimension, um, so yeah, whilst recruitment and um, carrying out work, I suppose, has become spatially less specific or less grounded in many cases with the availability of, of, of new various kinds of technology, would still argue that most work activity still does have a locational dimension. So if you think about the cases of organisations offering um, professional services, um, such as hospitals, um, accountancy practices, schools, um, universities and so on. There's a kind of locational dimension um, uh, that I think gives rises uh, to obligations which underpin the sort of reputation and sort of socio-economic standing of the occupation and an apprenticeship within a community. So I think we need to be wary of um, forgetting the locational uh, dimension in the kind of rush to um, to understand and, and also to sort of take on board um, more virtual types of working relationships. For apprenticeship, the location I think is still important in terms of imbuing the apprentice with me apprenticeship with meaning and recognition within various kinds of communities, including the kind of place-based dimension. And then finally, the social. So if, 
Lorna and I have argued that the quality of, um, uh, of an apprenticeship and, and workforce training and development really is a litmus test of an organisation's public image. Um, and that might, might be local, it might be regional, it might be, might be global. Um, there are reports of unpaid internships, for example, being quite exploitative um, and that that be generating some public concern and even outrage. Um, so that shows that the public do care about um, the kind of um, duty of care, if you like, um, that's um, associated with uh, supporting young people into work and uh, developing their, um, uh, their occupational expertise and their ability to become um, uh, contributors to the, the organisation and the labour market more generally. I think at a time when corporate social responsibility matters to organisations, more and more organisations in both public and private sectors, sort of being able to demonstrate a commitment to supporting the next generation can bring its rewards. Um, and I think some of the research is beginning to show that while we're looking at new kinds of organisations getting involved in apprenticeships, talking about how um, that's helping them to reflect a more diverse kind of workforce, which is more reflective of their local communities and, and that kind of thing. So um, we've got those kinds of dimensions of a model of learning, um, uh, which we can kind of use as lenses to think about um, the apprenticeships that we um, are perhaps developing um, or, or researching. Um, but it, on, on top of that, we need, we need to have some kind of um, device which helps us to evaluate um, the kind of quality of the experience. And um, Lorna and I developed the concept of the expansive restrictive continuum to do that from our research on apprenticeships in, in a range of sectors and occupations. Um, and it allows us, I think, through losing that kind of conceptual um, device, to think about approaches to apprenticeship as more or less expansive. And what I want to argue is um, that if we, want to if we want to offer apprenticeships that are going to support social mobility, we need to think about their expansive features, uh, which actually means that we have to get into the process and into the pedagogy into these other dimensions that I've been talking about. So just very briefly, um, to illustrate the continuum, um, there's a variety of features which we talk about as being um, um, characteristic of apprenticeships and that we suggest uh, can be placed on continua. So these are just a few just to illustrate the point. So um, where apprentices are given discretion to make judgments um, and contribute to decision making, they're more likely to have a, a kind of expansive experience. We come across appren uh, apprenticeships where there's very limited discretion offered to apprentices, um, which really does inhibit um, their learning and their ability to develop responsibility. On the expansive end, we have the opportunity for apprentices to move through different communities of practice, um, boundary crossing being facilitated. Um, or where actually participation is being restricted to a very narrow set of tasks in, 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 um, in one place. And then, this is the last slide on this, just three more, that, that where in the more expansive approach you will see planned time off the job um, for deeper learning and reflection, for standing back, um, compared to the experience where the training is all on the job or limited to the immediate job role. And of course, just to pick up on the discussion about the 20%, we've got a long history of government-supported apprenticeships talking about 20%, but 20% off the job, but 
when you dig into what off the job can mean, it, it's actually a very permissive concept. It doesn't mean going to college for a day a week or going to university for a day a week. It can mean actually a, a much, much, much more diverse set of things. It can actually mean um, you know going to the canteen, for example. Um, and then uh, just this, the last two, um, the, the point about managers, supervisors um, having a recognised responsibility to supervise and support uh, apprentices and facilitate their learning, um, as opposed to just being uh, in control of output. Um, and then the, the last one, which is, is quite controversial given current policy, we'd suggest that, that, um, uh, that, that a more expansive apprenticeship is going to include recognised qualifications, recognised currency that's going to provide a, a real a strong platform for progression to the next uh, next level, whether that's educational or in the labour market. So um, what I would suggest is that um, all workplaces um, themselves can be, seized, can, can be conceived as learning environments. And what I wouldn't want to suggest is that an apprenticeship on its own can be see, conceived as either expansive, more or less expansive or more or less restrictive. It's really about the relationship between the apprenticeship and the approach to apprenticeship and the kind of workplace environment in which it's, it's primarily located. If you have an expansive workplace learning environment, the chances of the apprenticeship itself um, generating an expansive experience for the uh, individual or, uh, and the apprentices is going to be much, much higher. So here we have, you know, some ideas around, you know, learning, learners as apprentice, apprentices in expansive environments. So what you see is that the apprenticeship's embedded uh, within broader business plans of the organisation. There's a deliberate um, effort to protect the identity of the apprentice as both a learner and a worker. And what you see in more, more restrictive um, situations is the apprentice first and foremost being seen as a productive worker. Um, again, the apprenticeship is, is, um, uh, consists of time off the job to disengage from productive work, um, and that there's a clear endpoint that signals that uh, a recognised level has been achieved, and there's um, a kind of clarity about where that can lead in terms of further destination, destinations. So I just want to give a little illustration of... Um, Peter. Uh, Peter was somebody that um, we came across um, um, a while ago and, and really what I want to, to show here is that um, Peter's expansive apprenticeship, he, his apprenticeship uh, included all those kinds of features that I talked about on the expansive end. This, ha this was available before anything called degree apprenticeships was invented. So this shows that actually we have for a long time had an idea that relating to occupational progression and development of occupational ex expertise, which has enabled apprentices, in, at least in some occupations, to move beyond their intermediate level um, uh, provision uh, into higher, uh, higher level work and higher level um, status. So Peter was an example of this. He worked in um, uh, a company that made bathroom showers, had about 700 or so employees. They're a long, they're a long-standing apprentice employer. Um, he'd completed a three-year um, advanced apprenticeship, level three apprenticeship, uh, in engineering. Um, the first year of which was pretty much all off the job in the college, in, in, the, in that old style. 
doing the um, learning hand skills. Um, and he had um, completed the apprenticeship with um, uh, an MVQ3, um, a BTEC national, um, uh, national certificate, so broadly equivalent to two A-levels, um, uh, a very, very fulsome logbook to show what he'd uh, achieved throughout his apprenticeship. And of course, he got UCAS points as well through the, the BTEC. Um, so how was he being developed further? Well, he had lots of opportunities for further development um, through the workplace, working on projects with colleagues of different levels, including uh, graduate engineers, including being given sole responsibility. He was being given the opportunity to progress um, to um, HMC, um, uh, and then the opportunity to go on and do a bachelor's in engineering and chartered, getting chartered status was all in his purview, should he so wish, and, and, and so on all supported by the employer. So he had the opportunity to go through to chartered status, chartered engineer status, um, which is obviously at master's level and beyond, before any of this was developed because the organisation, the employer and the occupation that was involved here have a, a real um, strong uh, concept of, um, uh, of occupational development and of a kind of ladder of progression um, built into built into that particular occupation, supported by uh, professional body arrangements. So in his case, his apprenticeship was enabling occupational expertise to be developed, progression, mobility, all those kinds of things. So what have we got in the, in the current uh, model? I think we've got some systemic problems, or you might want to think of them as, uh, more positively as, as challenges, um, uh, and maybe opportunities as well. Um, so, just a kind of reflection on this. So what we've got is a model. So we're now back to the institutional arrangements which comprise contemporary government-supported apprenticeship in England. So essentially what we've got is an assumption that any job or job role um, is a suitable vehicle, suitable context for apprenticeship. Um, and what that does is it generates you know, a lot of inconsistency, a lot of variety across sectors and levels um, and we've seen it in the um, in the trailblazers um, there was um, a lot of rhetoric about um, there being too many frameworks and too many pathways through frameworks and Lorna and I did a, a, a paper for the scope center um, arguing just just that um, and after the Richard review there was um, I think some um, encouragement that we were going to be moving to a more occupation-based model of apprenticeship it's more similar in some ways to to um, the, the, the kind of concept in, in, in Germany and, and some of those other countries um, and that there would be a sort of standard um, that was linked to an occupation and an occupation that was broad enough uh, defined in order to have some real substance behind it however I think the, the kind of resulting um, development of standards has really been a bit little bit of a free-for-all if you sort of stand back and look at them. Um, the second point I feel really strongly about, um, the apprenticeship uh, model is really a segmented model. Um, we looked at it earlier in terms of the numbers of starts, but in terms of that model of learning and that uh, journey towards occupational expertise, it's really, you know, quite challenging. Um, we've got people starting a level two, completing a level two, what does that then mean? You know, it does their occupation that they've been apprenticed in 
allow for uh, a more skilled and more advanced dimension to it, or is that it? You know, is, is it that you know that it? And if it is it, have the has the the sort of wider education and training that they've received and access to qualifications transcended that in some way to give them a, a kind of gateway to a next stage. Um, and I think it, this is being exacerbated now by the IFA's, you know, um, reluctance to acknowledge qualifications. And um, I know there's been some fight back um, by employers and by sectors. Um, but at the moment, um, we're still at a place, as I understand it, that qualifications are removed from level two, three standards except in special circumstances. So if somehow there's enough authority behind the complainers, they come just about force it force it through. And yet the higher apprenticeships and the degree apprenticeships in particular are being marketed and sold precisely because they lead to a qualification. So this, you know, rings, you know, Ninor sounds in terms of inequalities um, and social justice here for me. Um, and then, as we saw before, you know, the majority of apprenticeships are at level two, um, and it's common for apprentices below age 25 to be starting their uh, training, uh, in this case apprenticeships, below their existing level of attainment. So we've got, you know, a kind of double whammy there for young people, many young people starting a level two apprenticeship, completing a level two, who don't end up, in terms of the ladder, any higher than they did um, after they'd been um, before they'd started it. So I think there's a real treading water potential dimension to this, unless the apprenticeship is expansive, as we would, we would describe it. So just a couple of others. Um, the other aspect of the, of the kind of challenge here is that uh, about 70% or so of all apprentices that are starting on programmes are existing employees. Um, and they're being converted into apprentices within their current jobs um, with the uh, framework or standard most associated with their current job um, and there's no real robust procedure for ensuring that um, the apprenticeship is going to um, go much beyond accrediting their existing competence um, and the funding arrangements don't you know don't facilitate that I think there's also, I think this may be uh, part, uh, partly echo some of the points that, that Jim was making. Um, you know, there are issues in the economy here. You know, to what extent is the demand in the economy for the, the higher levels, um, uh, higher level skills, particularly in some of the service sectors, which are the ones delivering the numbers for apprenticeship. Um, and I think that can act on the, as a break on the ability of apprenticeship in terms of its institutional arrangements to leave the social mobility. So we know it's a challenge and we also know that um, we have the, you know, some of the most fantastic apprenticeships um, in England that you know, you'd find anywhere in the world. Um, but it is a challenge and it's not something that's easy to, um, you know, to, to, to wave, wave a magic wand and create. Um, so I'd just like to make a few points here. So, Apprenticeship on, its, on their own can't be expansive. We've got to think about the health of the workplace and the quality of work if we want to um, uh, offer very high quality experiences. So going back to the uh, paper on Scotland um, and the very interesting provision that you're developing, you know, you've developed at, at Napier. If the apprentices in their workplaces aren't getting expansive experiences, then you know, the optimum model isn't achieved, I suppose is what I want to argue. <coughs> 
Um, so the expansive apprenticeships really are about stretch and really are about substance. Um, and they do require capacity in the system um, to support them. So we need people in the workplace who, who know how to support people um, and, uh, and develop them and to provide feedback and that kind of thing. So finally to conclude, um, so I, I have got a concern about degree apprenticeships being promoted to um, those who are already relatively advantaged. Now I know we've heard some examples in, today about um, you know, apprenticeships, um, degree apprenticeships helping to do ha have a, some kind of diversifying effect uh, in line with you know initiatives that we've seen over the years around widening participation and so on and so forth. And I'm sure there is some of that, you know, ab absolutely. But what I see in terms of the kind of policy rhetoric and the policy debate um, is degree apprenticeships being prom promoted to already advantaged students. There's often quite a bit in the Times about this. Um, there was a nice report about um, about uh, some private schools um, encouraging their young their, their sick formers to go for uh, degree apprenticeships. You know, with KPMG and all these kinds of companies. <coughs> I mean, in a way, what's not to like? Yeah. <coughs> Sorry, it's hay fever. I don't know whether it keeps getting you like this at the moment. The pollen. Um, so, I mean, you can read some of that while I'm, while I'm choking. <laughs> but I think it is raising a question. And because we've got the arrangements um, that, ha that are based on this segmented approach, we haven't got a seamless um, concept of uh, apprenticeship, government-supported apprenticeship, allowing people to move on up. They've each time got to find some new opportunity, do another apprenticeship. I mean, that's a bit of a weird concept, isn't it? You know, you, you might have to do level two, a level three, a level four, five, and a level six, maybe then a, a level seven, five apprenticeships to complete your, your journey of occupational expertise. Well, there's something a bit weird about that, and there's some transactional costs involved in that, um, and something about misunderstanding, you know, the nature of what we're doing. So I'm worried about it, this, this approach deflecting attention from the quality of level two and level three, which for me are the, you know, the, the, really, the, the kind of area that um, we, should, we should really be focusing on, where we're really going to be developing the pool and the pipeline for, um, for, for progression. And then just my final point, really, it's, you know, if we want to achieve this, then it's really about um, a, concerted, a concerted effort and investment in developing capacity um, in, the, in the provider uh, uh, system, but also in workplaces um, as well. Um, but if we can do that, then I really do think um, that apprenticeships can um, really be a fantastic vehicle for social mobility. Thank you. Thank you.